stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present. And also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're bringing you another feature from our partnership with the podcast 177 Nations of Tasmania. In this podcast, host and producer Mark Thompson aims to interview subjects from each of the 177 nationalities represented in Tasmania's last census. This week's story belongs to Ali from Lebanon. Ali spent his childhood in Beirut, a city that was once a pearl of the Swana region, torn apart by violence. However, it wasn't the war, but a series of unexpected events that led Ali all the way to the other side of the world, to raise a family in Tasmania. Ali paints a vivid picture of Beirut in the 1980s and the changing fortunes of Lebanon in the 20th century. My name is Ali. I was born in Beirut and that was 1977, although on the ID it's written 1978, and that's due to the uh, civil war that was going on in Lebanon and things were like, you know, delayed. So officially it should have been 1977, but you know, it wasn't. So I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm one year younger on the ID, <laughs> which is nice. Back in these days, like for mom and dad, it was more important for us to stay safe rather than, you know, being registered that this person was born. I went to school in Beirut, and then I went to university in Beirut. During my university study, my father had a a car crash, and uh, he went into a coma state for three years. And these things kind of affected. I mean, I wasn't a good student; otherwise, I would have like you know focused more and like finished my degree. But I, and that was distracting for me emotionally. Was very very distracting, especially when when you're the eldest in Lebanon, you're supposed to be the one who will be responsible of the family. And we are six brothers and one sister, so it's a big, I mean, it's reasonably big family for Lebanon. We had my grandmother, who was my father's mom, that was living with us, she was an elderly woman, and uh, my mom, so, so we had to keep things together and that was very challenging back in these days. The war didn't really go on forever. Like it will go on for a couple of days and then they will stop and then they will start. Like you never know why they stopped and you never know why they started again. So you just remember suddenly when you hear the bombs all around the area, you just pretty much go to the basement. And there's there were basements pretty much everywhere in Beirut. So every building had a basement or had a room where it's called kind of the safe room. Mm. So you go and hide in there. So that's that's something about like my childhood that I clearly remember. And that's something that you would think, oh, this is the norm. And you don't realize until the war has ended and then life starts again. And then it's like, oh no, there's some other things that you can see. There was always black and white back in these days. So as as a little kid, we, like me and my brothers and my sister, we lived 
at our grandparents' house. It was a big house in the, in the middle of Beirut. Um, and my father was the youngest, and usually the youngest, he's the one who look after the parents when they get old. And so he got married and he stayed with his mom and dad. So he was living, my mother was living with them as well. So we were all living at their house back in these days. And uh, it was a nice big house for Beirut because usually if you're living in Beirut, you're living in units, you don't live in houses. But we were lucky enough to, you know, to, to have our own house and a little backyard where you go and play and, you know, just have lots of fun and... Plus, my grandfather, he had few little, uh, like, one-bedroom units around the house. There was about three or four of them, and uh, people were renting. He had a shop where we used to sell all the kitchen utensils, everything that you will pretty much need in the house, like starting from a cup ending in a big, let's say, plastic container that you can fill it up with water. And these containers were very important back in these days because water wasn't really always available. So we used mm -hmm. to go and fill up water from this. There was like a tap for the whole neighborhood. You go and line up and fill up the water and then, you know, and these, yeah, so these containers were very important. These people that were renting, they used to have trolleys and they will go and put, glasses, uh, forks, knives, anything that you will use in a kitchen, and then they will push it around the neighborhoods. The roads were very small in Beirut back in these days, and even if they weren't small, they, they were made small because uh, everywhere there were lots of sand hills and lots of places where it's, you know, it's too narrow for cars to drive through, and mainly because there were snipers on both ends, and to, to be able to keep safe, that was one of the things. So yeah, people will walk around with trolleys, my grandfather will give them the products that they need to sell. They will push them around, sell whatever they want, like whatever they, they okay. and then they will pay the price. There was a person who used to make sweets. It's something very close to Konefe, but it's something different. It's a filo pastry filled out with cheese and you have sugar syrup with it. And this guy, he used to walk around the neighborhoods and he used to call out, oh, these, they're not delicious. Don't come and buy them. And you should have seen it. Like, like people will be coming from everywhere just for calling out, like, don't come near me. I stink. These these sweets are not nice. You know, I'm, I'm a dirty man. And then, honestly, everybody will come and buy from him. Same. That was, I can't remember his name. He, he, was, he, was elderly. he was an elderly man back in these days as well. Like, he was, you know, in his probably 70s. The other thing of my childhood is during the war when we, go to school you will be sometimes to be able to cross from one side to another you have to walk through trenches mm. to get school and there's another thing is within the actual building let's say because the trench ends let's say at a, at a wall of a building you will find like a hole in the actual wall to get to enter the building it wasn't the door though there was like a hole under after hole after hole through through the rooms let's say of a building that was pretty much almost destroyed by the war from the top but the bottom is kind of you know safe because there are lots of sand hills around it surrounding it so yeah you'll walk through these uh, through these buildings pretty much it's like you know digging a tunnel into a big mountain mm -hmm. you just walk through it until you get to school or to the safe area <laughs> i was wondering how much schooling would have been disrupted by the war. big time always like you'll be will be having an exam let's say and suddenly such and such in in a neighborhood or a, or a suburb, he'll be like the person in charge of the area. He was assassinated, let's say, or killed, and suddenly the war break up. Like, the, the problem about it, you wouldn't know when does it start and when does it end. 
like the war has ended in 1990s, but nobody knew why did it end. Like it didn't have a reason to end. Like nobody was winning, and the people or the, the politicians that were that they were fighting, now they are in power. When they start firing at each other, you know there was few safe spots, pretty much. So you know that no one will be able to get you there or nobody will be seeing you. So we used to wait until they stop the fire, until they cease the fire, and then we'll go and collect all of these shells. And these shells, they're made out of copper. So you go and sell them. So you collect them and that will be your pocket money. You go and buy an ice cream or you go and buy, honestly. But when I think about it, it was crazy. It was brutal. But as a child, you don't think of any of these things. It's, It's more, you know, you always have that hope in you as a child, like, oh, there's something better, or there's, oh, it's nice, oh, did you see them? They were shooting, and I saw that, oh, these. And sometimes, you know, they will use some different type of bullets that when you shoot, it, it lights up. I don't know mm-hmm. what they call it in English, but it's like, you know, and then it's like, oh, wow, look at that. That looks lovely in the sky, especially when it's like, yeah. I, believe it or not, I don't talk much about it, but, you know, it's something that that was the normality for for an everyday Lebanese child that was born in the 70s. My parents and, of course, the people who were born before the war, like they talk about Lebanon, that Lebanon is, is the best place. If you want to live your life, come to Beirut and see. It's, it's, Beirut is the Paris of the Middle East. Back in the 60s and 70s, Lebanon was the place to come and visit. One of the things, actually, that I, again, I clearly remember about what um, the Israelis, they were occupying my village or, or a part of, of South Lebanon. I was born and brought up in Beirut. Same thing with my father. But his father originally comes from South Lebanon. So in Lebanon, even if you are, let's say, even if you were born in this area, you will always refer that you come from the area that your grandfather has come from. I visit the village quite frequently now, and especially because the Israelis, they withdrew from South Lebanon back in 2000. And that was in South Lebanon. I remember that happened in 1986, because I remember during that time, we moved from Beirut to Southern Lebanon because okay. there, there wasn't much fighting happening in South Lebanon and he wanted to keep us safe. <laughs> Yeah, so we had we had to flee Beirut because most of the of the Palestinian camps were in Beirut. There's two or three of them. It wasn't safe to to stay there. So we went to South Lebanon for like six months in 1986, or seven months, and that was that was one of the nicest times of my childhood again because this is where I learned swimming, and that was the first time I see a train because you know there was a train that was there take uh, fuel from South Lebanon to Beirut or from or vice versa. My father rented a unit, was looking, overlooking the actual uh, train track and the uh, and the water as well. So it was, yeah, you just get off and then go and have a look. And then we used to run on the train tracks and then after that, go and swim. Yeah, I swallowed half the Mediterranean. So <laughs> <laughs> seven years old, <laughs> drank too many, too much salty water. Yeah, he, he's the one who taught me how to swim. So once I finished year nine, the war stopped. I mean, I don't, nobody knew why they stopped the war and nobody knew why they started the war. 
and there was lots of innocent people that that died for no reason they've mm. got they just wanted to live every every single day as a normal person or, or the normal life but yeah it did feel that the muslims has won the war in a way because the syrians were more on the muslim side but of course they were trying to keep the balance i mean the actual ruler of the country during the 90s until 2005 it was the syrians it wasn't the lebanese like they were forming a government whenever they want they will you know say okay we're going to have elections all right we'll have elections they will choose the 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 president they will choose which minister they want and etc so it felt it felt that the muslims okay they have won the war and uh, mainly Sunnis and Shias, because like Sunnis, they brought Mr. Hariri from, from Saudi Arabia and he became the prime minister, the one who, who was assassinated in 2005, I think. It did feel different because after the war has ended or stopped, I was walking back from school. I usually, I usually used to walk with my brothers and my sister. So I'm the one who used to look after them. Like I was seven years old and I used to take them all to school and bring them back from school since I was a little kid. And my father and my mom always trusted me on that. Um, the, the other thing is I can't remember my mom or my father. Like they used to give me the money to go and pay my school fees and register all of the, you know, I used to do all of that myself. I didn't really need any help. Sometimes I do the same thing for my brothers and my sisters. So I was walking back from school after the war has ended. And then I'll, I was walking more on the Christian side because we lived in an area which was pretty much about 100 meters away from where the green line is, where the, all the fights were happening. Okay. And of course, after they cleared it all and they cleaned it all from the mines and, and bombs and all of these things, um, I was walking back and then I saw a guy, he came wanted to talk to me. And he's a Christian guy because he was wearing a cross. So I, I straight away knew he was And that was probably the first time that I see a person from East Beirut. Right. I've never seen, yeah, because the war was going on and mm. you wouldn't, where would you see them? You're living in your own area, they're living. And if you cross borders, there's, there are mines, there's snipers, there's everything. Like you'll get killed unless, you know, you, you know somebody that would. And that was the first time other than seeing them on TV, of course. <laughs> Um, and he said, um, "Hi, um, I would like to be friends with you." And you know, he he seemed a bit simple. And I said, "Look, well, I've got I've got enough friends. I think you know. So, but thank you. But you know." And he said, "Why not? We can be really good friends." And you know, and he, I mean, you can tell he was smaller than me. So mm -hmm. you can tell he wasn't trying to kidnap me, or because you always have these thoughts back in these days. And that happened a lot, sadly, during the civil war. Mm. Like they will kidnap people and it's mainly yeah. kids and like, you know, they will sell them or they will, yeah, it's awful. And yeah, so that's something uh, I was like, uh, wow, so now I've met, I've met somebody from the other side. <laughs> Just after the war has ended, my father started taking us down to the downtown. And then, because we, we only lived about two or 300 meters from the downtown where, where all the fights were, was happening. So after they cleaned it all up, because you know, after 15 years of war, or all the roads were pretty much green. And that's why probably they called it the green line. Mm. Because there were lots of trees that they were growing on the street, because you know, you, they shoot a missile or a bomb and then make a hole and that hole becomes a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's really crazy how so after they they cleaned it all up my father 
he started taking us and showing us what he used to do as a child or as 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 an adult, as a 20-year-old guy. He will show us where the movies that he used to go to, the theaters. He will show us where he used to go and swim, where he used to go and have a coffee or, or, or have a drink or something like that. And then after that, my grandfather, he took me down he, to Beirut, like, you know, down by the waterfront. And he showed me where he, he taught one of his nephews how to swim back in, in these days, like, you know, back in the 30s or 40s when he was 30. And it sounds so, like yeah. discovering a whole new city then. It, it was. It was. It, it was something amazing because you hear about all of these things and you see the movies and you see the you know the the uh, actual uh, plays that they had and because it's all on TV and it's all documented so you watch them but you've never been down in these areas mm. but when you start walking although it was all destroyed and distracted it was awful like when you look at it at the same time you can tell that that city has a soul like it mm. has something in there deep inside later on after they have I don't know why they've done that, but after they kind of reconstructed the city, it became a city without soul because they mm. changed it. They, it's not the same. They destroyed all these beautiful theaters that they were. They meant a lot to lots of people. It became a downtown for the rich people, and that's it. It, it hasn't been like before. Before the war, it this downtown it was for rich and poor and for everyone. So you can you can find let's say somebody who sells vegetables down there or somebody who's got a grocery shop. Or like like a little coffee shop where people you know a cafe where people will sit down and and play cards and smoke shisha and have a tea and a coffee and and watch the news about like what's going on in the world. It totally changed, mm-hmm. so it kind of lost its its concept. It lost yeah, yeah it, right. it's it wasn't the same sadly. One of my friends he said oh when I finish uh, school I'm going to go and to the military college and or military or join the army and become an officer. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. But in Lebanon, to be able to do that, you have to have, you have to bribe somebody or else you have to know somebody who is powerful who will be able to help you to get to that school or that college or whatever it is. So that's something like I always thought, oh yeah, that's a good thing. And then it's it's a, it's a secure job and you don't have to worry about anything. And you know, and being being an officer is, is powerful enough. And in Lebanon, you know, after being, I think after you become a major, they usually give you a car and they give you a driver. It's like you're living the dream. It's something really good. And and plus, plus there is no war back then. And because Israel was still there, so you were still considered in a state of war, but the army didn't really fight. It was the resistance who was fighting, right. mainly Hezbollah, like they were fighting the Israelis. So, and then uh, I decided to to study physics because I, again, you know, my mate, he was like talking about physics. He's the one who made me like physics because the way he talks about it and the way he's like, you know, explains it, it makes it sound really interesting which it is and i started liking physics but i didn't really study it much so i thought you know i better go and study physics i can go and do it why not so i went and studied physics probably for six months i was like that's not me i can't really do that and then uh, after that i went and done uh, two years of uh, accounting and i mean during that time my father had the accident i i wasn't mature enough to to study and finish my degree and then i studied law for like again six or seven months and uh, and then after that uh, you know my father passed away and i decided that's it i'm going to to leave lebanon after my father passed away in about six or seven months or maybe a year my grandmother his mom has passed away and uh, during her funeral 
one of my he's not my uncle he's my my auntie's uh, husband he was a cleric and he knew lots of clerics like all around the arab world and the muslim world my uncle called me he said come come here so he introduced him to me and he said i would like you to i would like you to take this guy with you to to london or i would like you to do something and take him to to london so he can work with you at the foundation and i was like wow that's that's like a dream coming true you know because for me when i was uh, i think year 10 we started studying english literature at school like we studied arabic literature and english literature although i didn't really like the teacher but <laughs> i just kind of enjoyed it when when not here when there was other teachers talking about let's say how shakespeare is is writing his uh, his plays and he would always say that his plays would be immortal everybody will be coming and reading them and like you know playing them again and again and again or when william wordworth talk about the cavaliers so for me i always like imagined that you know that i'm walking over the thames you know i'm crossing the thames river with i'm reading these like it's just as as a kid mm. you know i was 15 years old so for me that was wow like so it was it kind of you know took me back to these memories like that was good so this guy this person in in London, he he sent me an invitation to go over there, so I went there, and then uh, he was trying to uh, to sort out my paperwork, and then he had to go to Iraq. That was in two thousand and three, and then he got killed in Iraq. So <laughs> so he couldn't really finish my paperwork. I couldn't get my uh, my visas sorted, so I couldn't really work there. So I was in London for like about almost four years out of these four years probably three years i was living as like an illegal immigrant oh really <laughs> yeah so i was i was working with the foundation but i don't know there was some legal deal that they were doing so i was allowed to work but after that visa has ended i had to go back so i went back to lebanon and they renewed the visa and came back hoping that i'll be able to get something sorted and uh, but nothing has happened and uh, so i was during the day i used to work in the foundation in a magazine in an arabic magazine doing some editing and like copying few tapes and you know some lectures and all of that and then at night time i started working in a in a lebanese restaurant and uh, and that's where i met my wife she came wanted somebody to teach her arabic probably she asked whether i have a t i have a sister that can teach her arabic i said well my sister is in lebanon but if you want i can teach you arabic <laughs> And this is how we met. I didn't know anything about Tazi. And then when I met Jane and she like specifically made it clear that she is Tasmanian. <laughs> and I was like, why is she that fast about where she comes from? I don't get it. Like, <laughs> she's Australian, so what? Anyways, and then, uh, yeah, so slowly, slowly, I started knowing more things about Tazi. And, uh, and then Jane, uh, I don't know what she was saying, something kind of uh, trying to provoke my intelligence. I was like... Now she said, so do you know what Australia's capital is then? <laughs> I said, yes, I know. <laughs> yes, I know it's Canberra, I know that. So don't worry about that, <laughs> like I'm not that bad. So what happened is when we were in London, we had a spiritual marriage, so like a Muslim marriage. And then I came back and then we kind of had another wedding, but it was a smaller one. So I've got two weddings, two marriages or well, from the same woman. <laughs> yeah, so and it's been, uh, yeah, it's been 16 and a bit years. 
And we've been together for almost 18 years. You know, when, when you're living in a place and you don't know, you don't have stability, mm-hmm. and this is what it is. And, and that's what most immigrants seek for, stability more than anything else. And that's why they leave their own countries and beloved ones and etc. because they, they, they don't feel stable enough. They don't feel secure enough. So all of that sense of security and stability kind of uh, makes you, you know, just even if you don't know what is on the other side, whether it's green or not, you just make that and then you hope for the better. I'm not a practicing Muslim. Like, okay, I, I am a Muslim, but I don't practice. Like, yeah. I don't pray. I don't do all of these things. I did fast, though, back in these days. I don't anymore. I didn't drink. I didn't, like, uh, there's all, lots of things that, like, I did not really do. And I didn't want to kind of, you know, give up all of these values. For me, when I first came here, I didn't eat meat if it's not halal meat. So all of these things that slowly, slowly I managed to kind of, you know, move on. Like, I still respect all religions and I still, although, you know, I was telling you my father, like my father, he was a very secular person. Like he didn't really, you know, he didn't pray. I mean, probably uh, he did, but he didn't pray. He didn't practice religion. Yeah. My mom on the other side is a different, is the opposite. So yeah, so that was a struggle to me because every time I want to go out with my mates, they want to have a drink. And for me, like, I really want to go and like, you know, stand with you if I'm not drinking and you're drinking and, yep. you know, so, so things like that, plus like I like, let's say, playing soccer and I couldn't really find anywhere where you can just go and kick the ball casually with your mates. Like you have to join a team and you have to train and you have to do the, you know, join the, you know, the league and all of these things. You don't really give up or surrender, but at the end of the day, you, you want to enjoy what you're doing. And if you keep being stubborn and you don't want to, you know, move on and enjoy it, you kind of adapt. It's it's more like uh, what Darwin says. You have to adapt. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, since you've been here, you've had a couple of kids. Yes. Right? How many kids have you got? Two. So yeah. Samia is my daughter. And uh, Alexander is my son. So Samia Alice and Alexander Muhammad. Samia is 16 and Alexander, he's turning 14 in in a few months. Yeah, and and yeah, no, they, they're good kids. They, they like music, they like sports. When I first got here, I was telling you how I was really strict about, you know, these are the things, I'm going to do it that way. And I was talking to my daughter, I always spoke to her in Arabic. Until mm-hmm. she was two, she was always speaking Arabic. Like she was really good as like understanding what I'm saying and listening to me. Yes, and then you just, you know, kind of, you get when Alex was born, you just get too busy and too tired and all of these things. People here, they're more like machines. So they just like wake up, go to work, come back, go home, sit down, blah, 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 do do this, have a drink, prepare dinner. Um, it's It's like, you know, ABC, it's like, so very sort of scheduled. Yes. Yeah. It, you don't have time to wait, sit, think, and relax. You don't. There's, there's, that doesn't really exist much in this society. And that's really sad because we can appreciate time a bit more. We can, like, in the Middle East, they are really good in wasting time, which is, <laughs> which is that's why 
the way of living is really relaxed, it's easy. It's like, okay, you're meeting somebody and then uh, it's like uh, it didn't happen or like, you know, it happened a bit later. They don't really get too cross with each other. Oh, mate, I'm waiting for you. You didn't turn up like, you know, just take it easy. That story was from 177 Nations of Tasmania, a podcast by Mark Thompson. To hear the full episode, head to markthompsonmedia.com or search 177 Nations wherever you get your podcasts. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and ACCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.